Thank you so much, David, and thank you, Kelly, as well. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 today. You know, God works in our hearts, and He uses His Word to direct us. He uses His Word to teach us through the power of His Spirit. And it's important to always be sensitive to where God leads and how God teaches. And God has been teaching me a lot over the past month. God has been working in my life for the past three to four weeks or so, teaching me about how His faithfulness is true and how His faithfulness is important to how we react and respond to, to great difficulty. In fact, we, we read verses out of James that say things like, my brother is counted all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We know... We know the reality of what God is doing. In fact, we know that God promises. He says, I'm doing things for this purpose. I am taking you through dark places. Um, but we look around us, and sometimes the facts on the ground, the challenges we face, we, we look at the mountains around us, and, and we think, the mountains I'm being asked to climb, I can't do that. That's impossible. That's just too high. It's too hard. And, you know, we've been going, going through a lot as a church the past month or so. We've had friends in the hospital, friends facing life-changing things. We've had people go from here uh, to be with the Lord. And there's just been a lot of, of challenge that we've all faced as we carry the, the burden of one another. That's what happens when you're a church family. That's part of the reason as a church that we come. Yes, we come to worship the Lord. Yes, we come to give praise to Him and to honor Him. That is the primary reason we are gathered, but that's not the only reason we're gathered. We are also gathered to encourage and to challenge one another, to uphold one another, to pray for one another. There are one another's throughout the Scripture. And I think sometimes we're too quick to think that things are impossible. We see the challenge and we give up, or we say, well, I just, I just can't do that. But ultimately, whatever battle we face is a battle for our heart. And so this morning, I'm going to take a break from our First Kings passages, and we're going to give something special for us to hold on to this week. And I, I hope that this finds its way also to the hearts of those who are struggling, our friends who are, who are in Pennsylvania. We think of the Deer Kings, we think of the Smiths, we think of uh, Major and his family as they're struggling with the loss of Frankie. We want you to hold on to this. Hopefully, it'll be an encouragement, and it will challenge you to think the right way. Let's go to God in prayer and ask Him to bless our service this morning. Father, we ask for um, Your wisdom, we ask for Your grace, and we ask for Your presence, because with Your presence, we can have Your wisdom, and with Your presence, we can do anything through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, we ask You, God, to work and to stir in our hearts a desire to trust You and the desire to follow You and the desire to deny ourselves. And Lord, help us as we make these choices even this morning to follow you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The title of the message is Facing the Impossible, and I have you looking at Romans chapter 15, if you're there already, Romans chapter 15. Uh, look uh, actually back to verse 7. We're going to get a, a, you know, think of it as a running start and looking at this passage, Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. Paul, writing to the Roman church, says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God 
to confirm the promises made to their fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God in His mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud Him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, there, there shall be a root of Jesse, he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall, here's our key word, hope. Now, Paul, we're not going to get into why he's saying all these things right at this point. He's talking about the, the mystery of the Gentiles being included in the family of God. It's an amazing book, and we're not going to spend a ton of time. We've talked about that at length in other messages. But I want to focus on this next verse because here is our main verse where we're going to camp out. He has a prayer for the people in Rome. He says this, Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a benediction, a prayer for the people in Rome from the Apostle Paul. And he loves them. He desires what's best for them. And his prayer is this. He says, I want the God who is the God of hope to fill you. And I want Him to fill you with joy and peace so that in exercising this faith in God, the result is that you would overflow and abound in your work for Him. The word overflow, the word abound, is a word that appears throughout the Bible in the New Testament, especially dealing with our spiritual growth. One quick reference, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he says, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, see you abound and this grace also. Here he's talking about giving, but he's speaking of the fact that as we are Christians, we are to be growing and abounding and overflowing in these areas. And if you go back to what he says in Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. God wants you to grow in your hope, and he wants you to expand your hope. And what does it look like when we're facing the impossible? I have three main points for you today. This is a very unusual type of sermon. I don't usually preach these kinds of messages, but I felt compelled this week to do this. And so we're going to look at what God has to say about how to, how to, fix, how to, how to take on these impossible tasks. Number one, we can face the impossible when our hope is in God. I want you to notice how Paul introduces God here. He says, may the God of hope he could call God anything. I mean, we can, consistent with his nature, he could give God all kinds of titles. He could call him the God of love, the God of peace. He, there's all these titles for God, but here he focuses it on this title, the God of hope, the God who brings hope. This tells us a lot about the character of God. To hope is to wait with an eager expectation. Hope is necessary when there is a contrast or there's a, a difference between what is obvious now and what has been promised in the future. When we see that distinction, we're like, right now it doesn't feel very, very good, and the future has been promised, but the hope is required to get us from now to then. And he says that we can face the impossible when our hope is in God. Let's look at a couple of things. I'm going to have you turn your Bible today, so get your, get your fingers ready. Go back to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at an example of hope. Several passages today we'll look at. Example of hope in Romans chapter 4. Paul, again, we're staying in the same book here, writes to the Romans about Abraham and how he demonstrates hope. This is an example of someone who had every reason not to believe God. But he chose to believe God, to trust God, who made him promises. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, is it of faith, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. 
so that the promise might be sure to all of the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He draws the distinction between faith according to grace, that is, faith is not of works, it's a gift of God. We're believing God. We're not earning a favor with God. And what was the promise that God gave to Abraham in this moment? God promised Abraham he would be a father to many nations. And this promise was given to an old man with an old wife who would not have any kids yet. Now, if anyone had any reason not to believe God, it would have been Abraham. He says, look at me, Lord. Did you, sure, did you, miss, did you miss fire, your promise? Like, it was intended for my neighbor. Because look at me. Like, I, I'm here. I'm old. I, I, I have a wife who has had no children. She's old. If anyone would, would, would not believe God or have reason in our mind to not believe God, it would be him. Look at verse 17, and it, it tells us the promise. And he says, as it is written, I have made you a father to many nations in the presence of him who believed. God, notice God's character here, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Notice this. Here's who God is. God makes dead things alive. God brings life to that which has no life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see the example of God calling forth light. God is the one who brings life. And the second thing, He calls things into existence, as He did with everything that's around you. God called everything into existence with His voice. God spoke and the worlds came. God's power is beyond anything that you have. And so Abraham responds. He responds by hoping and believing in what seems like a hopeless situation. You keep reading verse 18. He says, who, contrary to hope, that's human hope, contrary to what he might expect, in hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what? According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. His hope was based in what? was based in God's Word. God said, you have descendants, and Abraham believed God, even though it was conflicting with his current experience of life. So, look at verse 19. It says, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not stagger or waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham considered the Word of God truth, even though his own body was crying out the opposite. He says, Lord, I choose to believe you. And here's our example of, of hope. Someone who looks at his situation and says, God makes promises, I will believe God's promise. And we can all look at our situation today and say, God gives promises to us, I will choose to believe God's promises, and I can face the impossible when my hope is in God. An example of hope here as uh, the man Abraham. Let's go back to the book of Psalms, and we'll see the promise of hope. Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, we have a prophetic psalm, what's often called a messianic psalm. David, the psalmist, is writing. He writes a prayer of preservation and salvation. Essentially, it's a prayer of hope. If you start at Psalm 16, verse 1, he's saying, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. He's asking God, Lord, please preserve me. Don't let me die. Don't let me go away. I trust in you. His confidence was in him. And what is the promise of the hope? How can he be so confident in this hope? Well, at the end of the psalm, we're not going to look at all of it at this point, but I want you to go to verse 9. 
This is what he says. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Okay, stop there. His flesh will rest in eager expectations. The flesh of David when he dies is what he's speaking of. When I die, when my body is laid to rest, I will be laid to rest and I will rest. My body will be buried with hope and expectation. I know he's pointing to the fact that he says, although I may not experience everything that I want to experience now, I may die. God may take me home, but I rest in expectation. And this is the truth of the Christian faith. The Bible teaches clearly in the bodily resurrection that one day we will be bodily raised. And and Jesus, His resurrection is proof that our resurrection is one day coming. It's throughout the Scripture. And this is the prediction He says here. Look at the next verse. He says, you will not leave my soul or my body in Sheol or the grave. He says, God, you promised you will not leave me there. I can rest in hope because you will not leave me there. Look at the next phrase. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Here's the point he's making. Your Holy One, the Messiah, will come and will die, and he will be buried, but he will not stay buried. And when Jesus was raised, how many days did it take until he rose? Three days, and he rose from the grave. He rose before his body could see corruption. Corruption is just a fancy word for decay. Do you remember what they said about Lazarus when he died? They said, Lord, he's been in the grave four days. By now, he begins to smell bad because his body is starting to decay. At that time, about four days, the body will start to break down and decay. And, and, and the psalmist David looks at the Lord. And he says, Lord, I know my resurrection is coming because your, your Holy One, your Messiah, he'll die, but he'll be resurrected before his body even begins to decay. And that's what we see happen in the New Testament. Jesus dies and is raised again. And because of that fact, because of that prophetic word, friends, this was written a thousand years before Jesus ever walked on the earth. David, speaking through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is giving us a prophetic prediction. And then look at verse 11. Because of this confidence, because of this promise of hope, he says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice how he points this out here. The first promise is you will not leave my soul in the grave because the second promise is you will not leave Messiah's soul or Messiah's body in the grave for his body to decay. And this is profoundly fulfilled in Jesus's resurrection. What a promise that David has and that we have of a future and a hope that's in God. If we keep going, the foundation of hope, go forward to Psalm 119. Just a couple verses I want you to see in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, each eight-verse section, beginning with the Hebrew letter of the alphabet. It works this way. It's called an acrostic, an expanded acrostic. Each eight verses begins the first one with the letter Aleph, and then Beth, and Gimel, and Daleth, and etc., and you'll see, you, can't, you can often see that in your Bible. You'll see little headers, say Aleph, Beth. What that means is that in Hebrew, each of these verses begins with the same Hebrew letter. It's a great way uh, for memory. It was how they, a lot of them would memorize these passages. But why don't you go to verse 49. 
Verse 49, Psalm 119, 49. And, and I want you to ask you, the, what, what does God say is the foundation for our hope? We have an example of hope in Abraham, the promise of hope in the Messiah's resurrection. What is our foundation for this hope? How, how We cannot base our hope on our feelings because our feelings change constantly, don't they? I mean, one day you're up, one day you're down. Yesterday it was raining. It was like Noah's flood over here. And I was driving around thinking, this is just miserable. Like, I, I, hate, I hate this amount of, of, of water all at once. So some of you people who have gardens and farms, you're like, praise the Lord. You know, you're thanking God for all the water. But, but, but you know, it's, it, to me, it's depressing. And then the sun comes out, and I'm like, hey, I'm feeling good now. Praise God. I hate to think that so much of my attitude is based on something I can't control. But isn't that the case? That so much of how we see things is based on our external circumstances. So, so it can't be based on my feelings because my feelings are up and down, up and down, up and down, as are yours. So what can, I found, what can be the foundation of my hope? Look at verse 49. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. What is his hope based on? The word to his servant is based on God's truth that's unchanging. Skip down to verse 81. He says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I what? Hope in your word. Where's the foundation for our hope? It's in God's word. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on what you think today. It's not based on what they say in the news. It's based on what God's word has said and what his promise is. And what is the result of our hope? We're going to stay in the book of Psalms one more time. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Once again, a psalm of David. He's speaking of trusting the Lord. If you look back at verse 1, he says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. Now look down at verse 24, the very end of this psalm. Here's what he says. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart all you who hope in the Lord. Amen. You hope in God, here's what he says. You should have good courage. You should be strengthened in your heart if you're hoping in God. You're in the right place. That's the result of your hope. You are, you are strengthened in your hope. In fact, this word hope is the same word that's used in Isaiah 40, 31. You remember this phrase? But let, he says, but those who wait upon the Lord or hope, it's the same word, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The result of hope is that we are strengthened by God. You give hope in God, and God strengthens you. As we read this morning from Psalm 42, one more passage here I want you to see is that there is actually a command to hope in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 we read these first few verses and we think of them as very sentimental and very sweet. Oh, as the deer pants for the water, so I pant for you. Deer, when they're panting for something, he's thirsty. He can't find it. And he is looking for something that he cannot find. And this is actually a psalm of despair almost. Not quite despair because there's hope in God, but there's a psalm of discouragement. 
How does the psalmist respond to this? How does the psalmist respond to this kind of discouragement and anxiety? Notice what he does in verse 5 and verse 11. He talks to himself. It's okay to talk to yourself when it's speaking the truth. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Disquieted is a fancy word for like in an uproar. Have you ever felt like that? Like your, your heart's in an uproar or your mind is buzzing and you can't think straight or you can't, you, you just, you, your mind is going crazy. You have so much on your mind. Why are you cast down? Why are you thrown to the ground, soul? Hey, soul, what's going on? Why are you this way? Why are you so upset? Well, if you want to know why he's upset, read Psalm 42. He tells you why he's upset. He used to go to the place to worship the Lord. Now nobody, people are mocking him, saying, ha, where's your God? Ah, you who trust in the Lord? Ah, hasn't worked out very well for you. He looks around, his friends have abandoned him. And he's in a bad situation, and he still says, hey, soul, why are, you, why are you so cast down? Hey, come on, wake up. Why are you disquieted? He gives the address, and he gives the solution, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He says, hope in God. There's your command, because I'll yet praise him. That means hope is a command. That means you can control what you hope in. That means you can choose today to hope in the Lord. You feel down. You feel like you're anxious. You feel like, I don't know what's going on. You can choose to hope in God. He says it again in case we didn't get it. Look at verse 11. Go down a few verses to verse 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. God is good. God is good, and God is the one we should hope in. Our key verse, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of God. Number two, we can face the impossible when our joy is from God. What's the reason for our joy? The, God is filling us with joy, it says here. May the God of peace fill you with joy. Well, the reasons for our joy, two passages, I'm, I'm not going to have you turn there, but Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be in the vines, though labor of the olive may fail, the, fe- yields, the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, if you had to retranslate that into 21st century America, it'd be like, though my 401k has gone bust, <laughs> though the stock market's tanked, though there's been a run on the bank, and all my food storage is spoiled. Everything I set up to try to avoid calamity has failed. I am at a loss. Here's what he says, yet I will what? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. We can rejoice when things are bad. Joy is not the same as happiness, because happiness comes and goes. You're happy when things are good, you know, things are not good. I mean, nobody wants you to be happy at a funeral. That's not a happy time. It is in some ways joyful, but you're sad. You've lost a friend. You've lost a loved one. Some of the things people are going through in our church, we mourn with them. We don't laugh at them. We mourn with them. We cry with them. That's sad stuff, but at the same time, we are rejoicing in what God is doing. We're saying God is still good. Things are bad. We rejoice. We can rejoice when things are bad. We rejoice in the God of our salvation. He is our God of our rescue. That's why we're rejoicing in Him. I will rejoice in the Lord. We make a commitment to rejoice in God when things are bad. And then a letter to the Thessalonians, sorry, 
there in Thessalonica. Paul says to these believers here, he says, you have become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Notice the connection here between affliction and what? With joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a connection between expressing joy in God and going through hardship, because that's when you truly know the joy of the Lord is when you've gone through a hard time. Anybody can be happy. People go to carowinds and are happy, right? People go to comedy clubs and are happy. People watch a funny movie and are happy. You can't have the joy of the Lord unless you know Him. We need to know Him. So when we're going through the depths and we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil because He's with you and His rod and His staff are comforting you. This is the difference between joy and what the world can offer in happiness. He says that here in much affliction at the same time with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all Macedonia. He says you received the Word Notice the connection to the Word. The reason for our joy is that God is good, and He's told us He's good, and we can lean on Him and expect Him. Now, if you turn to John chapter 16, I want you to see the anticipation of joy. John chapter 16, Jesus speaks to His disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament here. John chapter 16. And he begins in verse, I'm going to begin in verse 20 here. I'm going to keep going here. Find it as soon as you can and just join me as you can. But in verse 20, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. There is going to be a difference between our response to certain things and the world's response to certain things. There are things that grieve my heart that the world rejoices over. There are things that make us very sad that the world celebrates. He says, you know, you're going to go through life, and there's going to be a sharp contrast between the world around you and the things that make you happy and the things the world makes happy are going to be different. And he makes this very clear. He says, you will be sorrowful, but if you keep reading, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And he gives an illustration in verse 21. He says, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because an hour, her hour has come. Some of you are like, I wish it was only an hour, <laughs> right? But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. This is, I don't understand this about you ladies. This is something that's amazing, is that a wife a mother goes through a pregnancy and it has excruciating pain and delivers a child. And then like about nine months, you know what she's saying? Wouldn't it be great to have another one? Did you just forget what we went through? We went through. Like, the, you know, we went through. She went through, right? No, yeah, she has forgotten. That's how God works. God does this in a sense where she kind of, the, the joy of the child, the hope and the joy and the beauty of the newborn child makes you say, well, it's worth it. I mean, yeah, it hurts. It's bad. It's awful and all that. But, but we got a child, and God is good. And, and it's worth that. And he says, look at verse 23. Or actually, back to verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, 
and your joy no one will take from you. You know that see you again thing? He's just talking about his second coming. He says, there's a day coming when all the pains and all the sorrow and all the difficulty you're going through now, I will see you again, and it's going to be forgotten because the joy is going to be so great. Your joy will be full. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he'll give you until now. You've asked nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. He says, in the meantime, you need to pray. Come to me in, your, in my Father's Come to me in my name. Come to my Father in my name is what he's saying. Come and ask that your joy be made full. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. We can face impossible when our peace is with God. Biblically, God's peace is like harmony, rightly ordered world. The word peace has this idea of completeness, perfection, wholeness. How do we have peace with God? Some of you today don't know if you have peace with God. If you were to die suddenly on your way home and you were to meet your, your Savior, you were to meet the Lord face to face, you're not sure if you would have entrance into heaven. You're not sure if you have peace. You don't know what that meeting would be like. And, and we need to know this. We need to know that we have peace with God. And how can we have peace with God? Well, we have peace with God when we are justified. This is what the Bible teaches us. Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can only have peace with God when you are justified, when you are made righteous by God. And this justification, fancy word for being saved or getting saved, happens when we believe on Christ for salvation. When you trust Him, the Bible says by faith, when you trust Him, you receive His righteousness, you are justified, you are made righteous before God. And this is not given to those who will be self-righteous and say, oh, I've got it. I've got it covered. If you're intent on paying for your sins, God will let you. But Jesus paid for your sins on the cross and for those who come empty-handed and say, I have nothing to offer, nothing to give, give me Jesus. He will cover my sins. So those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a promise that you will be saved. And we'll be justified and we'll have peace with God. This is something a lot of people have. In fact, I love opening conversations like, do you know, do you ever, you want to have peace with God? You want to be good with the Lord? A lot of people want that. There's two kinds of peace here. There's objective peace, peace that can never be taken away. There's legal peace. You're declared righteous before God. All your sins are gone, nailed to the cross, forever forgiven. What an amazing truth. We can have peace with God when we're justified, and we can have promised peace when we focus on God. Would you turn to Isaiah 26? Just a few more passages we'll look at together. Isaiah 26, a song that was sung before I took the pulpit this morning was out of these verses. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. God says, I'll give you objective legal peace when you're justified. How about experiential peace? How about the peace that I feel? about the peace in my mind? Isaiah 26, you, God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. In the Hebrew, literally, this says, To the one whose mind is upon you, you will keep in peace, peace. In Hebrew, they don't 
often to describe something like uh, they'll repeat the word instead of giving a, an adjective. So the word perfect is our way of saying the most peaceful kind of peace. Okay? And here he says, you will keep him in shalom, shalom, in peace, peace. In Genesis 3, he says, in the day you'll eat of the tree, dying you will die. So our translations say, you will surely die. Here he says, I will give you peace, peace. So our translation says, he will give you perfect peace. So what God is promising is the perfect, peaceful kind of peace. The peace that is more peaceful than any peace you can imagine. It's peaceful peace. It's the peace. It's God's peace. And remember how we describe peace? God's order, God's God's harmony of doing things, that nothing's out of place, everything is perfect as it should be. Notice who does the keeping. Who does the protecting? God does the protecting. You will keep him in perfect peace. Why? Because you trust him. There's two sides to this. God says, I will do the keeping if you'll do the trusting. You've got to do the trusting. There is, there is a responsibility laid on your feet. If you are in turmoil, if you are not trusting God, this is a promise given by God that is conditional. He will keep him in perfect peace if your mind is stayed. If you keep your mind on God, God will give you that perfect peace. So many times we are anxious and we have ejected from this. We don't trust God. But God says, That's, it's there. Just trust me. In fact, that peace is so wonderful, it's beyond anything we've ever experienced. Go to the back of your Bible to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And I want you to notice the Bible teaches us we have a peace that surpasses our own understanding. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. That means you're not allowed to be anxious. It is a sin to be anxious. Why is it a sin to be anxious? Because that shows that you don't trust God. He says be anxious for nothing. Not only in certain circumstances, not when things are way out of control you can be anxious. No, no, no. For nothing. And so I challenge all of our hearts, be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. This is your solution. Rather than being anxious, give your request to God. And you're like, well, well the, I, I don't understand how that works. And he explains in verse 7, and that's when the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. I think he's referring to the same thing that we just heard in Isaiah 26 three and four, this perfect peace of God. The peace of God is beyond your understanding, and it will do the work of keeping and guarding your hearts. If you go to Him, don't be anxious. Have God's peace. This is a surprising peace. You might say, I don't know why I feel God's peace, but I do. I've spoken many times to our friends who are going through these hardships, and they will say something like that to me, like, man, God is doing something in my heart. Like, people are praying. I can tell. Because we have this peace that's from God. God's grace is so good. It'll be a peace that protects. God's peace has kept me. It's, it's kept me focused on what is truth. It's not allowed me to get carried away into believing what is false. It guards my heart and my mind. Where does this battle begin and end? In the heart of men. This is a heart issue. 
if we're going to accomplish, if we're going to face the impossible, and this happens through the power of Jesus Christ, it says at the end, through Jesus Christ. And one last passage here we'll look at is in Colossians 3, teaches us that the, the peace of God must guide our thinking. In Colossians 3.15, maybe one or two pages over in your Bible, and you'll find the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, how, how can this work? How can we trust God to do this? You must let God's peace rule and lead your heart. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. When you're tempted to not believe God, you need to allow God's peace to call the shots and make the decisions in your life. I'm speaking to myself here too. These are lessons God has been teaching me. God's peace must impact how we interpret our situations. We should think about our impossible situations through the lens of God's peace. God made peace with us. God gives peace to us. He must be, we must be fully committed to trusting and loving the God who gives us this peace. God's peace should guide or direct our thinking. Go back to our main verse and think through it. As we said, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope to the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the key. The key phrase for this morning is this last phrase, in believing. And this word in is the idea of while you are believing or in your believing or by believing. Faith is absolutely essential. Our response should be faith in the God who gives hope, joy, and peace. And the result is that we abound in peace. So how can you face the impossible? How can you climb that mountain? Remember what the angel said to Mary when she was confused about how everything would work out? Look at the bottom of your uh, outline. What does it say? For with God... Nothing's impossible. How do you face the impossible? Well, you don't. You say, Lord, I need you to face the impossible for me. I can't do it. It's out of my hands. Lord, I'm, I'm resting in you. You're the God who gives hope and peace and joy. These three work together so we can get through whatever God brings our way. If we believe in a sovereign God who works all things together for our good, we are way too quick to think that something's impossible. Believe in the Lord and pray and trust Him, the God of the impossible, and He will take us through. Would we bow in prayer together here? Lord, we thank You for giving us hope and joy and peace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have forgiveness of our sin, redemption, but also peace and calm and a, and a quiet heart. In the midst of everything else turning upside down, we know that You are the God who's made promises to us, has been faithful in the past, and will continue to be faithful in the future. And so, God, we rest in You. We trust in You. And, Lord, You know the burdens of the people of our church. You know the burdens that are heavy upon hearts. And, God, we thank You for carrying these burdens. We thank You for holding these burdens. We pray, God, that we would not be we would not be intent on carrying them ourselves, but we would give them to you, the God who can do anything. With God, nothing's impossible. Lord, help us to trust you, to have our hope in you, confidence in you, faith in you. That we might experience the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We may have the hope that comes in the morning. Thank you, God, for all you've done. And as we give our hearts to you now, I pray that you would be glorified by every decision we make. And even now, Lord, if there's someone who does not yet know you, I pray they would 
trust you for the first time today, that they would say, yes, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and I trust Him and His gift of salvation. I, I repent, Lord, of my wicked thinking. I change my mind to agree with God. And may we all come into alignment with your truth today. And those of us who've been full of anxiety and full of despair, I pray you would rebuke us gently that we might trust you and be filled with hope and joy and peace in believing so we may abound by the power of the Holy Spirit every single day in the joy that you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with a hymn, hymn number 464. We'll have a prayer here. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Let's stand together, 464 in your blue book. 464. Three stanzas there. Let's sing all three. Charles.